Beloved of the Lord, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 10, reading through to verse 34, the end of the chapter. You see there the title of the sermon is Always Ready, Part 1, Foundations. Look at Part 2 next week. And our verses of focus, you can see there, will be verses 22 to 34, where Paul makes his apologetic presentation before the Areopagus. Please listen carefully, brothers and sisters, because this is God's holy and infallible word. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So we've seen... When Paul was provoked, heaven's heart towards idolatry, and we've wondered aloud, haven't we, why there's not an army of such Christians uh, so deeply pricked in their conscience, in their souls, by this rebellion against God and this harm against our neighbors. And we've seen hell's response to the good news, and the mocking voices and the challenges that have been given to Paul, even trying to understand a little bit about the Epicureans and the Stoics, as we looked at a few weeks ago. Today, before we dive into Paul's words to the Areopagus, 
We're going to pause and step back and have a foundations, a, a, a look at biblical apologetics. You'll see that Paul operates from these principles, even though he doesn't necessarily state the principles aloud as he's going through his apologetic. What are these principles? They're listed there in your outline. First, we need to understand that there are kingdoms at war and that these worldviews are antithetical. There is no common, common ground between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Uh, the basic maxims, the presuppositions of these two worldviews are in diametrical opposition to one another. We must understand this as God's ambassadors, as ambassadors of the king. Next, we have a kingdom of darkness that we deal with. It is defined as darkness, and it is based on self-authority, and it creates nonsense, irrationality, a self-contradictory worldview that we are called to tenderly reveal to those with whom we engage. Next, we look at the kingdom of God, the third step, and we see that as we speak, we speak only from God's word. We speak only from revelation. We seek to embrace the basic maxims given to us in God's word, and we know that it is the only way to have a rational worldview that is internally consistent and free of self-contradictions. And as we define these two worldviews, we are, as you'll see in the fifth step, we are defining the antithesis. In the course of this, we must not be misled to think that our neighbors who are deceived, whom we are tender-hearted towards because they are deceived and self-deceived, and yet they are without excuse. They live in a world of culpable ignorance, willful ignorance, as we will see, and we must not forget this because it is in this context that we call for repentance. To the degree that we minimize the um, sinfulness and the rebellion of those who are in this estate, we do them harm. And we do not show them the path to repentance rightly. We will define the antithesis whenever we are talking with those who challenge the gospel and ask us for a reason for the hope that is within us. And... In this, we are pointing out the impossibility of peace between the two kingdoms. There's no detente. There's, there's no negotiation. It is an all-out, unrestricted warfare that we are engaged in. And the Father is placing all of the enemies of Christ under his feet. And every enemy will be placed under his feet, either in worship, like the woman in Luke 7 who cried on his feet, or those who are cast into hell. And so we must understand that this is the nature of the warfare that we find ourselves in um, and, and do what we can for our neighbors to help deliver them out of that plight that they find themselves in. And it always comes to a call for repentance. And this call for repentance is thorough and it is comprehensive. It is not partial. It is a call to utterly and completely forsake, renunciate, and reject darkness and the Lord of darkness and the world of deception and to embrace Christ, the King, who is our King and the King of Kings, and who has blessed us to be His ambassadors to proclaim His terms of peace. And there's only one thing that people need to understand, that it is an unconditional surrender. And this means that we utterly and completely submit ourselves to Him. And we find out as we do so that it is our only comfort in life and death. And as usual, uh, we'll come to the end of the sermon and ask some basic questions to know love and obey God more. As we're going through this, I hope you will consider the path of sanctification and the renewing of your own mind and see the parallel here that the transition from darkness to light at the beginning is, the, is a commitment, but then that commitment finds its reality as we have our minds renewed and we cast aside every thought that sets itself up against Christ as we are being sanctified. I'll say it again, I believe this bears repeating numerous times as we go through this text, that Paul's interaction with the philosophers of Athens and his defense before the Areopagus serve as a pivotal text on the application of biblical apologetics. We have much to learn from this text. It's good for us to consider our key defining text on apologetics as we move into today's text. I'm going to go through this again. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. And he who... 
And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I hope you will remember that this concept of apologetics comes from this Greek word here, which means to give a defense. This is a verbal defense. It is a speech in defense. It is a reason, statement, or argument that occurs as a response to someone challenging the proclamation of the gospel. We will be threatened in our lives, and in this text we see that we will need to have courage to be apologists. It will take courage to be an evangelist, and it will take supernatural courage, more supernatural courage, to continue and be an apologist. These threats will tempt Christians to abandon defending the faith. We see here also that apologetics, evangelism and apologetics start with a heart that's wholly given over to God. He is sanctified in our hearts, and because of this, we are able to move without fear. We also see here that apologetics requires readiness. It's reasons we have, it's, it's this text that is reasons we have sermons like this. We need to have spiritual, God set apart in our hearts, and mental intellectual preparation. I believe that today's sermon provides a nice learning matrix for you. If you will look through these six points and consider these six points, you will be very well prepared and know where to focus your studies in order to be an effective apologist. This will inform, inform your learning preparation plan. And do you have an apologetics preparation plan? Do you have one in your life? As I've said already, apologetics occurs as a response to questions, to attacks, it's responsive. This is worth emphasizing because if you present uh, the evangelical message, you proclaim the gospel, this person may just repent and believe, right? So you don't need to launch into an apologetic presentation of the reasons for your hope unless they ask for it. They may just repent and follow the Lord. Now, these apologetic defenses we are to make to all who ask. We are to be generous regarding this. We are not to show favoritism. Um, it doesn't matter what it appears, whether they're, as I've said, they're wearing the Italian leather shoes or not, right? We want to treat every soul, every individual as valuable, like God does, made in his image. So we give a response to all who ask. The hope within us prompts others to ask us about our faith. If we are hopeful, we will be given opportunities to be apologists. Are you hopeful? Is your hope in the Lord? And by inference, our hope will be evident by our words and our lives. So there'll be a faithfulness to our living, a humility, a gratitude, a, a growth that is present in our lives that speaks of a different kingdom to those who are not in God's kingdom. When we give our reasons, we need to see this word reason. It means it's solid. It is rational. And this involves knowing the scriptures as we will see in one of the key steps today. This is a critical preparation step. Our reasons for hope arise solely from Scripture. We cannot find hope apart from God's promises in His Word. And all our reasoning then proceeds from these foundational realities revealed in Scripture. We call these foundational realities maxims or presuppositions. Rationality and uh, thus uh, an inherently, excuse me, an internally consistent worldview is available only for those who embrace Scripture as the sole infallible authority. And this will show up in our lives in sanctification as well. Do we trust the educational establishment more than God's Word? Do we trust the psychologists more than God's Word? I could go on and on, right? Do we trust the economists more than God's Word, right? And we are called to have all of our basic maxims proceed from the Word of God. When we learn to think this way, 
We are thinking God's thoughts after him. We are thinking the way God thinks. Now, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against unseen forces. So as, these, as we work as God's ambassadors, we understand the nature of the battle that we're in. And thus we are humble. Because as we defend the faith, we're told here it must be done with meekness and fear. Never out of pride, but with humility. Remembering that this is our neighbor. This is another image bearer. This is one who, like us, was self-deceived. We were self-deceived. And if you've grown up always trusting in Christ, then you, you have points of self-deception that God is removing from your life. And so these are our fellow image bearers. These are our neighbors that we are to love as ourselves. And so we are to present the apologetic with humility. And as we'll see as we go on, our combat speech is towards the worldview itself and towards the evil one who has taken our neighbors captive to do his will. As we move into this, we need a good conscience. We need a good conscience. We need to know we're forgiven. Okay, and we need to know that we're behaving properly towards our neighbors as we have these conversations. And so our good conduct is going to be essential. We have to be upright. Uh, no one's perfect, but we can walk as the upright as we have these conversations. So, biblical apologetics, we've said, is sanctified, courageous, prepared, responsive, generous, Hopeful, faithful, rational, humble, forgiven, upright believers giving a defense for their faith. And the motive is implied in all of these words. And for the glory of God and with a heart of goodwill towards our hearers that they would be delivered. The results of this, we should expect that those who revile such biblical apologists will be ashamed of themselves. God will shame them. And if the Lord wills, biblical apologists will suffer for doing good. We need to be prepared that we will suffer for doing good in this fashion because the biblical apologetic is a sharp sword and it divides the world into the two divisions which are meant to be emphasized. In contrast to all the other divisions that the devil wants to throw our way. Democrat versus Republican, black versus white, man versus woman, rich versus poor. I could go on and on, right? All of these other divisions are distractions from biblical thinking. And we are called to define the world in our speech according to God's definition, to speak his words. So again, a maxim is a presupposition. You'll be hearing me use this phrase or these words. And this is a basic belief, listen now, that cannot be proven. Okay? It is held based upon faith. It is not based upon proof. And every human holds a set of basic maxims. And part of the biblical apologetic is helping them to see that and helping them to see that they are also essentially religious. Every worldview at the start is based on faith. There are basic maxims that cannot be proven. They can be disproven once revelation is embraced. It's really important, again, for me to emphasize, I think, for us to have this in mind, this overarching understanding that this battle is spiritual, brothers and sisters. It is against unseen enemies first, not against the person before us challenging the gospel. Paul understood this. The Epicureans, the Stoics, the Areopagus Council, these were not the enemies. These were puppets of the enemy. We are told in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Paul wrote this later. He was operating according to this principle as he went through this battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul understood the nature of the battle. And you can see how this fits together with our courtesy and our meekness in apologetics. With tenderness towards the person and simultaneous combat speech 
against the ideas of death assaulting this neighbor with whom we speak. So first, kingdoms at war. We need to understand that these are antithetical worldviews, and there's only two. Acts 26, 17 and 18, Paul speaks of it. He shares here what Jesus said to him at his conversion. Jesus said, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The kingdom of Satan is defined for us here. It is a kingdom of darkness. What does that mean? It means it is founded upon lies. And its citizens, there are citizens of this kingdom of darkness. I used to be one. Kingdoms in this citizen, in, in, citizens in this kingdom of darkness are deceived by the lies upon which the kingdom is founded. What is the power of Satan? What is the dynamism of Satan? It is deception. He is called the father of lies. And his kingdom is built upon lies and deception. This is what darkness means. What are the needs of the individuals in this kingdom of darkness, trapped in it, ensnared in it, self-deceiving within it? They need supernatural deliverance from blindness to see the truth. The text talks about opening their eyes. This is what's happening to you and to me as God renews our minds. Our eyes are being more and more opened. They need repentance. They need to see that they are wrong, that they are deceived, that they have been lied to, and that they are caught up in a kingdom of lies. This is a complete renunciation of their worldview and a complete submission to God, and the Bible calls it repentance. This is to turn from darkness to light. And brothers and sisters, we need to be going through this ourselves as God sanctifies us, as our minds are renewed. Each time the Lord brings and shows us that there's a thought that we believe that is not true, we need to repent of it with as much fervor as we do at the beginning of our life, of our new life in Christ. Next, they need the forgiveness of sins. They need to see God as their father and be delivered from God as their judge. And when we, when we proclaim the revealed gospel to folks, we are bringing the remission of sins to their lives through the death of Jesus Christ. They need an inheritance. They need to know they have eternal life and be delivered from the damnation that comes after judgment. We need this as well. They need sanctification. After being born again, they need to be growing in life and not in misery because the kingdom of darkness is a kingdom of misery. Next, they need faith in Christ. And as you can see, these are things as his people that we need to be growing in as well. I hope you see major theme for this is a biblical apologist is one who's been shaped by the apologetics of God himself in our lives. They need faith in Christ instead of unbelief and self-reliance. In contrast, we see here the kingdom of God is a kingdom of light founded upon God's truth that drives away lies. And we, its citizens, are filled with light. We walk in truth. We invite the word of God, the light of his spirit, to come and show us all the darkness within, all the lies that we believe. Its citizens know the power of God, which we know is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And we experience the power of God as his truth renews our mind and as we go through repentance and faith and growth in Christ-likeness over and over again. And this shows up in reality, real change. You don't have to be hopeless and uh, constantly discouraged and disappointed, thinking that we cannot change. This is the power of God in us. All of our human needs are abundantly supplied by God. The sight we need to believe his word, repentance to leave behind our, our old views, the life of death, forgiveness of sin that we remember and rejoice in together every Lord's day, 
eternal life to where we know that nothing can take us from God's hand and sanctification, the joy of being changed together into Christ's image. And all of this with growing faith in Christ. These are beautiful things that God does in his kingdom. And these two kingdoms are in utter opposition to one another. And the sad reality is the flesh, the old man, is still present within us. The vestiges of the kingdom of darkness, the old man, dwell within each one of us. And so this process of sanctification is a daily call to death blow to our flesh. The same level of repentance we call for, as Paul called, called for for the Athenians, we want, we want that same call to repentance in our own lives every day. So these are two kingdoms which are in permanent opposition to one another. We have to remember this. There can, be never, there can never be any peace between these two kingdoms. There's only total warfare until one side is eradicated. And we see this. We see this in the forces of darkness in the world. Uh, we see this at work in our world today, I believe. These forces will never surrender until every human is dead. The devil will never surrender until he stands on the earth shaking his fist in God's face saying they're all dead. But praise be to God that Christ will never surrender. And praise be to God that the Father is greater than the one he created, Lucifer. And that the Father is placing all of his enemies under Christ's feet. And this is unrestricted warfare of the Father against the enemies of his Son. So we need to have this cosmic level understanding as we gauge in apologetic encounters. This is very important for you to realize what you're engaging in as an ambassador of Christ, the King of the universe. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 puts it this way. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. So as you're engaging with someone in an apologetic encounter, this PhD who looks so respectable and stands beneath the columns of the halls of glory in this world like they did in Athens, you need to remember that this person is ignorant and blinded and darkened and that their minds are captured by vanity and futility. And so again, we see how we are to think about those who challenge the gospel instead of, instead of submitting to it. Their minds are utterly overthrown by lies. Now, they may believe some truth, and, and they will reveal aspects of logic in the way they think, but is a monstrous conglomeration of truth and lies. And to the extent that their basic maxims are lies, their minds are overthrown by lies. Futility and vanity, therefore, will define what, what the Bible here calls their darkened understanding. This means that their conclusions are this mass of deceptions, a, a tangled web of some truth and much lies strung together in blindness. So we must not allow the externals to pull us off this reality. The glory of the Areopagus did not distract Paul from the basic Reality of light versus darkness. David said he had more understanding than all of his teachers. We must also not be distracted by PhDs or the wealth and pomp and the grand accomplishments of today's Athens with which we are surrounded. Which in many ways, as we know, dwarfs uh, the majesty, the supposed majesty and power and wisdom of Athens. Brothers and sisters, there is no axiomatic common ground between darkness and light. These are antithetical presuppositions. Antithetical means utterly separated. No common ground. This is our Lord versus Satan. Another way of thinking about this is what do Jesus and Satan have in common? Truth versus lies. When we understand this, we'll move into these conversations with a greater confidence and a greater understanding of what the Lord accomplishes in deliverance. Bonson says, Paul understood that the unbeliever's mindset and philosophy would be systematically contrary to that of the believer. 
that the two represent in principle a clash of total attitude and basic presuppositions. Paul taught in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, that the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding because of their ignorance and hardened hearts. While a completely different condition characterizes the Christian, one who has been renewed in the spirit of your mind, your mind and has learned Christ, for the truth is in Jesus. The wisdom of the world evaluates God's wisdom as foolishness, while the believer understands that worldly wisdom has been made foolish. The basic commitments of the believer and unbeliever are fundamentally opposed to each other. Of course, the devil wants to muddle this. Uh, there are views of biblical apologetics that muddle this and, and introduce ideas that fail to start from this point, thinking that we can somehow have some axiomatic common ground with unbelievers. We cannot. There is no axiomatic common ground with unbelievers. As we consider Paul's apologetic before the Areopagus, we'll do this next week, we will see him beginning with the maxim of two permanently opposed and contradictory worldviews. While he does not necessarily state this or any of his apologetic foundations as a part of the apologetic, we can see him operating from this maxim and other apologetic foundational maxims. This is very helpful to us. Next, about the kingdom of darkness, we need to understand that it is a kingdom of autonomy, self-authority, that creates a self-contradictory worldview that we are called to reveal to the unbeliever as we are having these apologetic conversations. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So these individuals, and we were there too, live in this world that they believe is knowledge. They believe it is internally consistent. They believe they can explain the contradictions, but they cannot. And it's not even knowledge. It doesn't even qualify in the category of knowledge. So because the kingdom of darkness rejects God and his revealed word, because the kingdom of darkness is thus necessarily founded upon the authority of self instead of revelation, and because it is guided by the deceptions of the father of lies, it is therefore a logical necessity that the kingdom of darkness and those who are entangled in its lies will speak and believe that which is profane and idle and contradictory, which can never meet the biblical definition of knowledge, and we are to look for this. We are to point out these internal contradictions as we have these conversations with folks. So therefore, arriving in this conversation as an ambassador for Christ and his kingdom, we understand and we, in ways, express the total warfare of God against his enemies. No neutrality, no axiomatic common ground. And we go on to demonstrate the myriad internal contradictions of the worldview of darkness we are encountering at that moment. Now, these are our fellow human beings. These are our fellow image bearers. We have that in common with them. Yes? So we know the needs of, of being human. We understand the cry of the human heart. We know these things through experiences, fellow human beings. We have that in common. But the worldview guiding this person has no common ground with the worldview of heaven. Now, what does this mean? This will require study of that particular darkness worldview with, with we are engaging at that moment, with which we are engaging at that moment. So it's what Paul did, right? As he surveyed Athens and its multitude of gods, he went around, he studied the paganism of that time. 1 Corinthians 1.20 puts it this way, where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And foolishness, one of its criteria is it's self-contradictory. So we as Christ's ambassadors understand that this world's wisdom will be filled with folly. And we can't let all of their magical hand machinations and their Obi-Wan Kenobi, this is not your droid nonsense, keep us from believing that they are speaking nonsense. And looking for it and asking loving questions that reveal 
the internal contradictions of the system. We learn to ask questions that help the other soul perceive its own self-deception, remembering we battle against spiritual forces, not against flesh and blood. This is our fellow human being. This is our neighbor. Bonson says, Paul further understood that the basic commitments of the unbeliever produced only ignorance and foolishness, allowing an effective internal critique of his hostile worldview. The ignorance of the non-Christian's presuppositions should be exposed. Thus Paul refers to thought which opposes the faith as, quote, vain babblings of knowledge falsely so-called, unquote. And he insists that the wise disputers of this age have been made foolish and put to shame by those called foolish. The unbelievers become, quote, vain in their reasonings, professing themselves to be wise. They become fools, <clears throat> unquote. And we'll see Paul demonstrate the internal inconsistency of the ancient pagan worldview as we look more closely at what he has to say next week. Meanwhile, we remember the beauty and the glory of God's kingdom, the authority of God's word, the beauty of revelation, and the solid, unchangeable, invincible maxims of reality that are given to us in God's word that via logic applied with these starting premises creates a beautiful, rational, internally consistent worldview that provides peace and beauty in every aspect of reality. Colossians 2 puts it this way, pertaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not just some of the treasures, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So only in Christ and his word do we find wisdom and knowledge. We cannot find pure wisdom and knowledge anywhere else. These priceless treasures are found in him alone. And he has opened his mind to us in his word. All wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. He is the sole original source of truth. Proverbs 1.7 puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So only in reverent submission to God and his revealed truth can we walk in knowledge, that which is true and that which is rational and that which creates a world submitted to these truths that is good and beautiful. So we have confidence, brothers and sisters, in what we believe. And it will stand up to all the tests of the ungodly. All of the apologetic demands of the ungodly are met by the word of God. And it shall stand until the end of time. And we are made able to put our reason, our mind's work, to its defined purpose, and that is to work out from revelation, reasoning from God's maxims. We can't even justify the existence of logic if we do not start with God's word. This will always produce an internally consistent worldview free of contradictions, fruitful and beautiful. Thinking God's thoughts after him, loving him with our all of our mind, as we say each Lord's Day, by believing what he says and thinking the way that he thinks. So as we simultaneously understand the fallenness and the darkness of the kingdom of Satan, we are rejoicing in the beauty and the consistency of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. Bonson says this, by contrast, the Christian takes revelational authority as his starting point and controlling factor in all reasoning. In Colossians 2.3, Paul explains that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are deposited in Christ, in which case we must be on the alert against philosophy, which is not after Christ. Let it rob us of this epistemic treasure. Epistemic meaning source of knowledge. The Old Testament proverb <coughs> had put it this way, the fear of Jehovah is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Accordingly, if the apologist is going to cast down, quote, unquote, reasonings in every high thing exalted against the knowledge of God, the apologist must first bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, making Christ preeminent in all things, Colossians, Colossians 
Upon the platform of God's revealed truth, the believer can authoritatively declare the riches of knowledge unto believers. And we will see Paul do this, and every apologist must do this. We proclaim the basic maxims of reality. And you see Paul doing this. God as creator, sustainer, redeemer. God proclaiming the reality of sin and judgment and the need for repentance. The reality of the resurrected one and of resurrection. And then we reason out from these basic maxims to reveal to the Athenians the reality of their miserable situation. We do not, we do not give way to the requirement unbelievers place on us to prove to them that the Bible is true. To prove to them that God is creator and sustainer and redeemer of his elect. That he will be their judge at the end of time. That there is such a thing as sin. That the repentance did ha- that the resurrection did happen in history. We proclaim these truths. And if they challenge us at that point, we say it is true because God's word says so. And we can move on from there to challenge their demand for us to logic, for us to prove. Because no non-Christian worldview can sustain the existence of logic itself. Can sustain the requirement for something to be proven. Now there are evidences of what God has done. For sure, we know this is true. But we do not submit to their worldview. Next. Our neighbors, while we have tender hearts towards them, because they are caught up in the devil's trap, nevertheless, they are culpable. This is a culpable ignorance of the lost. They are without excuse. Romans 1 puts it this way. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now note who is active here. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. So as I've said, while our hearts must remain tender toward our neighbors who are deceived by the devil, nevertheless, we also understand that in their sin, they join in with the deception. They want the lies to be true. They go and they live out, they expend mental energy on ongoing self-deception. Bonson puts it like a beach ball. Uh, The self-deceived are floating on a beach ball that keeps them suspended, keeps them from drowning, allows them to breathe and have life and talk. And they float around saying there's no such thing as beach balls. There's no such thing as beach balls. This is a great analogy for self-deception. They are using the very breath and logic that God gave to them to deny His existence. We know this from our own experience as well, don't we? Given our daily combat with our own stubborn flesh. Have you bumped into your own stubborn flesh, your own beach ball mentality where you don't want to admit something is true because it would require you to repent and walk a different way. We have to be involved in self-apologetics and one another apologetics. Are we having our minds renewed, brothers and sisters? So this point is simple. The fallen man is culpable before God even though the devil and his forces are the enemy combatants. These unrighteous men are said to do the following things in this text. They suppress the truth. They willfully ignore God's creation revelation. They refuse to acknowledge God as creator. They refuse to give thanks to God. They pridefully claim that they are wise on their own. And they go on to shamefully worship false gods. This is the nature of the fallen flesh. 
Bonson says, Paul's writings also established that because all men have a clear knowledge of God from general revelation, the unbeliever's suppression of the truth results in culpable ignorance. Men have a natural and inescapable knowledge of God, for he has made it manifest unto them, making his divine nature perceived through the created order, so that all men are without excuse. This knowledge is suppressed in unrighteousness, placing men under the wrath of God. For knowing God, they glorified him not as God. The ignorance which characterizes unbelieving thought is something for which the unbeliever is morally responsible. And we will see Paul show the Athenians how they are also without excuse. <clears throat> so, understanding these things, in the course of the apologetic conversation, we push, we not only define, but we push the antithesis. We, we say words that try to demonstrate how far apart these two kingdoms are. We push them as far as, as vocabulary will allow us and time will grant us. There's an impossibility of peace between the two kingdoms. And as we demonstrate this antithesis, we will show that there's only one rational way out of what is coming for that kingdom. By setting the stage through defining the and pushing the antithesis, we bring before the unbeliever's eyes a growing, burgeoning desire to repent and to leave behind this nonsense. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul states it this way, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. So in our biblical apologetic, we must not yoke ourselves in any way with their failed system and its false maxims. Instead, we set the two systems in stark contrast as our final step before calling for repentance. Can there be two things more different than dark and light? That is, we call them, we go on to call them to a total renunciation of the devil and his lies and all his works and all the subsequent sinful ways associated with that rebellion, and to turn fully to Christ and his kingdom of grace, mercy, life, and truth. This is what we call our children to when they call them to trust in Christ and find them as their deliverer, their savior, and as their Lord. This is an unconditional surrender that we are called to. So having defined the two kingdoms in permanent conflict, having defined the failed thinking of the kingdom of darkness, and knowing the guilt of those caught up in deception and self-deception, the next step is to emphasize there can be no peace between darkness and light. There can be no negotiation. This is a no-quarter battle to the last soul against the kingdom of darkness. And the ambassadors of Christ are kind to his enemies to inform them of this. We are kind to them to do this. So practically this is done by bringing the two opposing worldviews into contrast with one another to reveal the foolishness of darkness and highlight that this foolishness cannot in any way be remedied or advanced or recovered. It is irredeemable. It is irredeemable like the fallen flesh itself. These things must simply be destroyed. Bonson says, Given the preceding conditions, the appropriate thing for the apologist to do is to set his worldview with its scriptural presuppositions and authority in antithetical contrast to the worldviews of the unbeliever, explaining that in principle the latter destroys, now listen, destroys even the possibility of knowledge, that is, doing an internal critique of the system to demonstrate its foolishness and ignorance, the self-contradictory nature of any fallen worldview, and indicating how the biblical perspective alone accounts for the knowledge which the unbeliever is sinfully using for their own sinful purposes. By placing the two perspectives in contrast and showing the impossibility of the contrary to the Christian outlook, the apologist seeks to expose the unbeliever's suppression of his knowledge of God. The apologist seeks to expose the unbeliever's suppression of his knowledge of God. Hey, that's a beach ball you're floating on. Is that a beach ball you're floating on? I think it's a beach ball. So again, we'll see Paul do this in his apologetic before the Areopagus. 
I commend to you the debate between Bonson and Stein, if you've not listened to it. Um, is there a God? And Bonson presents what's come to be called the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And its summary is that the existence of God is proven by the impossibility of the opposite. And Bonson gives a wonderful display of these principles uh, in that exchange with Stein. Next, we call for repentance, brothers and sisters. And you really should think of repentance as, as ambassadors for Christ, as presenting his terms to his enemies, and it is unconditional surrender. It is unconditional surrender. This is how we are called to present the entire nature of what's going on in these conversations. <clears throat> they are to reject darkness and embrace Christ. They are to leave behind the shackles of their Lord Satan and embrace the yoke of their King Christ. Every apologist who is faithful will eventually call for repentance. Every apologist who is faithful will eventually call for repentance. The complete abandonment of sin, and deception, and its darkness and misery, and the complete and unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. It is in this context of gospel preaching. This is gospel preaching. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. It is in this context that God gives faith to his elect unto forgiveness and eternal life. To be freed from the damnation, the judgment, and the destruction and the misery of being ensnared in self-deception and a life of sin. 2 Timothy 2.24 But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So you see the meekness of Christ on display again. But what are you doing? Correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps, perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So we don't know what God may do, right? I think it was Spurgeon who said, if all the elect had a yellow stripe down their back, then we'd know who to preach to. But we, we preach to all, because we don't know if God may perhaps grant repentance to this person with whom we are engaging. And note again this kind of speech. Come to their senses. They're out of their minds. Self-deception is a form of insanity. And through this, they can escape the snare of the devil. And they are in captivity to him to do his evil will. So we do not call for compromise between the devil and the Lord. We don't set up a DMZ, a demilitarized zone, and say, okay, you know, we'll just call it a truce. We don't call for a partial restructuring of the self-deceived mind. We call for their total deliverance from the devil's bonds via total repentance. How much of your cancer do you want removed? Our apologetic goal is to utterly slay the worldview of darkness with God's light. Watson says, by placing the two perspectives in contrast and showing the impossibility of the contrary to the Christian outlook, the apologist seeks to expose the unbeliever's suppression of the knowledge of God and thereby call him to repentance, a change in his mindset and convictions. Reasoning in this presuppositional manner, that is from maxims, comparing maxims, refusing to become intellectually neutral, so we don't give up the word of God, so refusing to become intellectually neutral and to argue on the unbeliever's autonomous grounds, we don't do that, prevents having our minds corrupted from the simplicity and purity that is toward Christ and counteracts the beguiling philosophy used by the serpent to ensnare Eve. In the face of the fool's challenges to the Christian faith, Paul would have believers meekly correct those who are opposing themselves, setting biblical instruction over against the self-vitiating perspective of unbelief, self vitiating perspective of unbelief and showing the need for repentance unto the knowledge of the truth. Repentance unto the knowledge of the truth. This wondrous reality of thinking like God, thinking his thoughts after him, that he blesses us to walk in some little way as his um, mouthpieces, as his ambassadors, should bring us great joy and hope um, and humble us 
that he would grant us these sinful lips, uh, the, the opportunity to speak of such wondrous things. I think the first point of application, as you've heard me mention over and over again, is, is your mind being renewed? Do you have this same kind of mentality towards your own flesh? This unconditional surrender mentality towards your own flesh? Do you want others to have this unconditional surrender mentality towards your own flesh as well? Your brothers and sisters. And will you have that towards the flesh of those around you as well? That we will help one another walk in the life of repentance and faith together. Having our minds renewed, brothers and sisters, so that we may be transformed together in the likeness of Christ our Lord. What great joy this is to uh, depart more and more from the kingdom of deception and to live more and more in the kingdom of light. None of us will fully be there until after we're glorified and we bear with the darkness in one another's souls, uh, trusting that God alone is the one who gives repentance, um, crying out to God to grant it in great form in an accelerated fashion for us. Would you like to be as much like Christ as possible before you die? Yes, indeed. Next, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of the nature of the battle that we're in because we will be distracted from this, as I've mentioned already, by the polarizing lies of the devil. The devil desires to distract us, his people, from the important, the important polarization of reality. That there is the kingdom of dark, the kingdom of the darkness, the kingdom of the devil, and there is the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the sun. And we have been called into this kingdom of light by his grace. And that is the reality in which we live. And every battle, every conversation, every item of reality can be traced back to these two kingdoms. And it is our calling as Christ's ambassadors to make it so. Winsomely, kindly, tenderly, timely, in the, in the right way at the right time, with grateful hearts and, and, and goodwill towards our neighbors. I think it would be good to pray for yourself and for one another that we would be these types of ambassadors. We're called ambassadors in his word. Proclaiming the king's terms. You know what an ambassador is, right? It's a wonderful position, and we're all ambassadors. We are given the great privilege of speaking the king's glory, the king's kingdom, the king's law, the king's grace, the king's mercy, the king's truth, and laying out his gracious terms to those who are abject rebels deserving nothing but his wrath. And to lay out the terms of his mercy to them and the great joy of unconditional surrender and total freedom and relief from the coming judgment for those who are outside of him. We can be this, these ambassadors. Now, we don't want to truncate the gospel, right? So much of what we've talked about here points to Christ's kingship, points to his kingdom. And of course, the only way to be delivered from the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness is through his death upon the cross for us to trust in his death upon the cross for us vile sinners, that he took the wrath that we deserve. But so often it's a truncated gospel in today's world where the concept of unconditional surrender is laid aside as legalism. Oh, brothers and sisters, what is our only comfort in life and death? Say it. That we are not our own. That we belong, and I'm sure I'm just paraphrasing, we belong in both body and soul, in life and death, to our faithful Savior. These are the king's terms. Brothers, this brings us into, brothers and sisters, to meekness, to courage, to real wisdom as his apologists. And you know, these conversations you'll have with your children, right? Children, as you're coming up, you'll resist the gospel. We all do. And your moms and dads, 
will be able to call you to unconditional surrender to Christ your King and a wholehearted repentance to walk in His ways. And may we, brothers and sisters, demonstrate that to one another in our lives. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You, Lord, that You are so good to us to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness, from Satan and his most sophisticated lies and his schemes that none can withstand apart from your grace and our own self-deception and entrenched rebellion against you for which we are deserving of your wrath. Lord, we thank you that you have delivered us through your death upon the cross for us and that you have granted us faith to rest in your deliverance upon the cross and to rejoice in your resurrection and your ascension and your reign over us as our King. Oh, Father, bless us to be sanctified, we ask, and bless us to be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom. Lord, bless us to participate in the conversion of many souls through thinking your thoughts after you, through loving what you love, and thinking the way that you think, and speaking according to your word, according to wisdom, in Jesus' name.